What is up, y'all? Welcome back to another episode of the Meaning of Podcast. Uh, I'm RB3. I'm Sabrina. And we are welcoming a special guest, Adam Halavik. What's Thank up? Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, nerd out about my favorite horror movie. <laughs> well, I mean, we we uh, this is one of the most iconic horror franchises of all time. And the original uh, John Carpenter film we covered in our uh, Meaning of episode, I think it was our 56th or 57th episode we did with um, cop, uh, uh, Christian Ruvacabra, uh, Copster back then. Uh, where we talked about John Carpenter, but I, I love that we're going to spend this uh, this hour, particularly uh, this is coming out the day before Halloween, really digging into the titular horror movie. Um, I know Sabrina has a very special connection to this movie, um, so Sabrina, kind of tell us about uh, your your Halloween fandom. Yeah, so when I was growing up, I was a huge fan of horror, and I really, really, um, I just loved slasher horror. I thought it was super entertaining, really fun. And then kind of as I as I grew older, I wasn't really as attached to that specific genre of horror, like subgenre. Um, but ever since the new Halloween came out, which I know obviously we'll get to later on in the episode, that kind of reinvigorated my love for Halloween and my love for all of this. And I still find it to be that very entertaining, high energy. And in this particular case for Michael Myers and for Halloween, the patience that we have with this slasher horror film is is something that I find really interesting and why this one stands out above the rest. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now, Adam, you, you have proclaimed this to be your favorite horror film of all time. Yeah. Tell us why. What 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 about the original 1976 um, John Carpenter film has impacted you so heavily? Uh, I first saw the movie when I was nine, and I think the movie just terrified me, just flat out terrified me. Um, I had to convince a teacher at my school to let me borrow the VHS copy of it. And before that, I had seen it on AMC. They would replay it every Halloween. They would replay a, a few of the movies, but particularly the first one. And I remember just seeing the mask, that Shatner mask painted white. For some reason, it, it really, I think it's really true that you kind of project the thing that terrifies you the most onto that mask but there was still something like super intriguing about it. And I loved the music so much. And I loved the cinematography before I even understood what cinematography was. I was only nine. Um, and sort of all of those elements, I kept coming back to that movie every year, every single Halloween. And I never had seen it from the beginning. And then once I was able to watch it all the way through, I realized like, man, there's something like really special about this movie, but I don't understand what, because I'm like barely old enough uh, I, I probably shouldn't have watched it at nine because it traumatized me a little bit. Um, but it was just something so captivating about it that I stuck with it every single year. I would watch it on TV. And then as the new movies would come out, I would go see them theatrically. And the first one I actually I, that I saw in theaters was H2O. And then from then on, I've watched them all and kind of just been obsessed with with these movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, I think that whole idea of projecting your own fear onto um, and to uh, Mike Myers and to the shape, you know, and to this, uh, this image of pure violence and vitriol and this killer who just roams through the night and just seems unkillable. Um, that kind of, yeah, it, it does leave room um, for, for that. And like you said, that iconic um, white mask that, you know, 
is does kind of serve, you know, it is taken from the great William Shatner, uh, but it does kind of have that like strange everyman kind of thing to it, but just a little off kilter. Um, Sabrina, is what do you what have you taken away from the iconography of the original Halloween? Like, how how do you think it's influenced our our coach the culture of, of horror films? Yeah, so obviously this wasn't the first ever slasher film, but this kind of push it over like over the edge, you know, onto the map because we have this small, low budget independent film that just ends up being a huge success. And then all the films that followed, people were just really excited about seeing something like this. I feel like the mythos of Michael Myers is really what draws people to this franchise. Like you said, the shape, the evil, the way Dr. Loomis describes him in the first film, when somebody said like, oh, um, a man can't do that. And he's like, he's not a man. It just takes everything so much deeper and makes everything so much darker and scarier because at the end of the day, like that's exactly, he is a man and he's able to just do this evil on this town completely and just shatter everybody's idea of suburbia. This like quiet little sweet town in Illinois. Um, I grew up in Illinois, so I'm very, very well acquainted with Illinois suburbia. And the way we kind of are shown this town in the beginning of the first film and all the Halloween decorations and how the people interact with each other, it does seem like really wholesome and really sweet and definitely something that we've seen in our own childhoods. And then for everything to kind of be shattered that night, um, I just think it's definitely something really terrifying. And then of course we have the final girl trope with Laurie Strode. And that's something that I've always loved. I love to see, you know, the like heroine just come out on top at the end, especially when she's up against a villain like Michael Myers. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think like in terms of the mask, when Loomis describes Michael Myers and he says he's got the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, and you watch that movie, you never really see his real eyes, uh, except for maybe one or two parts at the very, very end. And I, I remember very vividly when he breaks through the closet door, when he's trying to get Lori, there's a lamp or there's like a light on over his head. And even with that light, you still can't see those eyes. And I think for me, being so young, it like really kind of defined for me, like, yeah, he is just evil. He's this unstoppable force, which is why I think it's so genius that they call this character the shape. And even though in the movie, he's never referred to it as that. Um, just the idea that he's this unstoppable killing force. There's something really intriguing about that. And then Lori just kind of being being this character who despite the fact that she makes a lot of mistakes, what she does and what that movie does, it really helps kind of like redefine, like you were saying, what slasher genre eventually kind of rolls into, into the 1980s and beyond, which I thought was so impressive that one small little indie movie could do that. And I think it's become more and more common as we've gone through the decades that it's always these small indie movies that come in and do something unique that people are like, oh, we need to capitalize on this. And they definitely did. And, you know, I think that's, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, that kind of amb ambiguity to the look and the lack of empathy you have towards a character like like Mike Myers and, and, and uh, that kind of fear and that kind of evil that kind of is encompassed in that in that um, in that mask. Um, you know, we talked about on our first cut live stream of when we talked about our favorite horror movies, how, um, you know, a lot of times horror, especially during a particular time period, is a, a reflection of what people are fearful of, you know, during that age and during that period. And especially during the late 1970s, when we're 
in a very uh, post-feminist, we're getting into the second wave, or I believe third wave of feminism, entering the third wave of feminism, um, and 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 having a, a transition of, you know, uh, having a transition of 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 of, of power in in the country, right? Like, you know, this is a post-Reagan era, I'm sorry, post, a pre-Reagan era, post-Nixon era, where things are still kind of feeling corrupt, still, feel, still kind of feeling anxiety from, like, Vietnam and all these, like, tumultuous times in the 60s and the 70s. Um, there was a lot of fear and anxiety around the notion of the serial killer, too. Um, you know, the Zodiac Killer was in the early 1970s, there, you know, and there's a number of serial killers that were um, it's particularly targeting um, young women, um, you know, uh, so combined with the feminist movement during that time with the fear and anxiety of like, of these mysterious um, unsolvable killers who, you know, go on these, on these sprees, um, this movie kind of encompassed both of those um, fears and anxieties and, and, and one really tightly packed um, really smart and inventive way to where it, you know a lot of slasher films and a lot of horror films at that time were very exploitative and were very much banking on the idea of killing women and harming women and that's kind of was a selling point but this was kind of one of the early movies to kind of subvert that narrative and to take um, and to take hold of that to where uh, Laurie actually um, um, comes away uh, walking away free so um, I don't know what do you what do you think about that Sabrina yeah I I definitely this is one of those things where, um, you know, within this film and within a lot of slasher films, we always see like um, hypersexual activity between the teenagers. And then the final girl is always that like pure virginal uh, type of character. And I always found that to be really interesting. And then with you talking about Michael Myers, um, another thing I loved about it, and I mentioned in the beginning was the patience that he has. There's so many scenes that are so long and so drawn out, but the thing is like it works 100% within this film where I don't think it would work in others. It's just the way John Carpenter kind of had this vision with this story. He walks so slowly. He's so menacing. He's so looming. And that goes to that aspect of his character and the kind of atmosphere that's created within this film with that buildup of tension, just really severe tension. Um, and then the kills also lack a lot of blood. So it's something that you kind of mentioned compared to other slashers is that we're not seeing like violence against women and a ton of gore. Everything that we see, it's it's scary visually, but it doesn't go over dramatic to kind of scare us in that way. It makes it more real and something like, yes, this can happen to anybody. And this is a realistic type of story. It's like they're going after babysitters and they're just going after normal people going about their lives on Halloween in a suburban town. Um, and so I always, that just added so much more suspense to it rather than just all this noise. It feels like even with the score and the sound design, everything's very meticulous. Like it's there for a reason. It's not there for purposes just to frighten us. And so that's definitely something that I really admire because um, you know, as we go on within the later films, uh, we kind of lose that. But with this film, I really do believe that they nailed that completely perfect. Yeah, and I think, you know, the opening sequence, it's one of the first times I believe we use, they use the uh, Panaglide uh, camera system. And it just has such an effect. And the length that it takes to go from the outside of the house, around the back, then back to the front, and all like that whole sequence. I think that really helps set the tone of like, this is a movie that takes its time and you're gonna live in these scenes. These scenes are gonna breathe. You're gonna understand the atmosphere. 
And I think it also helped the tension too. It feels like every moment the score gets more and more dramatic, you feel this like energy. And I, I, I think the reason why I love the movie so much too is because it's not gory and bloody. I think in the later movies and even the remake especially, like it goes so overboard where I'm like, well, this just kind of lost its charm. It's, we're just now spraying blood over the wall and praying that people are like, oh, this is good. And I think that's what makes the first movie so charming in, in that like weird way is because it, it's so limited with what it can show us, I think it just makes it an overall better film and it just relies on tension, suspense, the score. I have a hard time, like I understand why people call it a horror movie, but a lot of the times I'm like, it's a horror movie but it's not what you would define typically as like horror where it's just gore, blood and guts. It's, there's not, there's really none of that. You see blood a few times. Um, so I think like all of those elements, I think really, um, I think that's why I gravitate towards that movie more so than a lot of the other copycats that came out later on and why I like it over all the sequels as well. Yeah. And uh, you know, I actually, um, we talk about that that style and the uniqueness in the filmmaking and the kind of like careful lensing that uh, John Carpenter had. We talked a little bit about that in our in our meeting up episode with Christian Rubicabra. How much of a directorial stamp John Carpenter put on this film because it is distinct. Like and you don't really see a lot of that throughout the rest of the franchise. And it's very you know John Carpenter. Uh, he was a, a attendant of USC Film School. Um, didn't gra- didn't graduate. He did drop out, but he made some really excellent short films where you start to see the beginnings of that quiet, slow style of of that like meticulous style. And the fact that he does his own music lends to his own contribution to the rhythm and the pacing of the film as well. So he has a real understanding for for editing. He has a real understanding for pacing and music and all of that stuff. So it just adds to this overall creepy like under the skin kind of feel um and you know in a lot of ways this movie could be categorized in in, in, a, in more of a thriller category than, than an actual horror movie um but when we talk about the opening sequence adam um that opening sequence is actually reminiscent to um a film that i actually saw in um at usc film school called peeping tom um which is like this 1950s like british horror movie where uh you essentially the first uh, minute and a half um you're looking through the POV of of a killer, look uh, like um, stalking his prey, like looking at a from the perspective of a dude who is looking at a prostitute on the street and looking and following her. So that kind of like slow, suspenseful one take, long take kind of thing um, is something that we saw in previous horror movies, um, and, you know, and and some other foreign capacity. But I think Halloween kind of took that and popularized it and got the a ball rolling. I think that whole, I think having that, um, I think having that like opening hook and having that like introspective, like kind of creepy, like feeling like, you know, just from the jump gives you kind of the idea of what's at stake and how, and gives you a lot more sympathy and understanding for what Lori's going through. Well, Uh, I think also the big surprise is you don't find that out till the end of the first sequence is it's a kid. Right, You're kind of right. expecting it to be, you know, like some older adult or, mm-hmm. you know, like an older teen. And you find out it's a six-year-old boy. And right. I think for most people, probably when they saw that for the first time, I know I did. I was like, oh, I, I had no idea that that's what that twist was going to be. You get little mm-hmm. hints of it, obviously. It's like you think like when he grabs the mask and the knife, you're like, those are some kiddish looking hands. But how young is this kid? And you find right. out it's a six-year-old boy and you're like, oh, wow. Okay, that's, that's, that's different and kind of crazy. 
Well, it's funny because we actually recreated that uh, that uh, that short, and well, not recreated, reimagined uh, uh, and, uh, the the Halloween mythos and and that kind of uh, uh, scene in in our short film with the Wangers, uh, the Shape. Uh, if people want to check that out, it's on. Yeah, amateur hour films. Be sure to check that out. That was a really great time, but yeah. It just goes to show the influence of of what Halloween has meant to generations beyond um, the the ones that came out. And I kind of want to uh, jump ask that question to you, Sabrina. What do you think has given Halloween that extra added um, effect and that extra bonus uh, kind of prestige when it comes to uh, the the for one the slasher horror genre and for two um, you know the uh, uh, John Car- John Carpenter's filmography in general because you know he he's had some some hit or miss kind of uh, stuff after this, but people will always remember Halloween. So what do you think it is about this film that, that makes it so special? I think it's a lot of what we already talked about, like how unique it, it, it is for slasher films in general from everything. When we hear the score, we know exactly where it comes from. Even if you never watched the movie as a kid, everybody would play that around Halloween time and it would just chill you. And it works perfectly within the film. The patience, the lack of gore, that's why I think it's worked so well and st- it stood the test of time because it doesn't it doesn't exploit anything. It really shows you everything in a specific way that makes it more accessible to people who don't typically like horror. That's why I feel like a lot of people enjoy this one. Everything from the camera movements, um, the angles, like that buildup of suspense that gets released in certain moments, even um, the lack of jump scares, like there's there's relatively no jump scares, like genuine cheap jump scares within this film. And I really, really admire that. And I just feel like a lot of people can watch this and enjoy it. And it's not anyone who only loves the horror genre or for people who don't like it, they can see this and really enjoy it. So I think it's just something so special and unique. And that's why I think it's been difficult to kind of recreate the magic with the first one, with the sub- with the films after it. And then obviously like the remake as well, which is hit or miss for some people. I personally enjoyed it, and I know we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. But it really is just so iconic and haunting and chilling um, that I just feel like a lot of people kind of get drawn to it just from all of those different aspects that we've kind of mentioned. Yeah, and I, I think in terms of Carpenter, because that movie was such a hit – you know, right out the gate, more or less. I mean, I know before it premiered, they had a couple screenings and people were like, oh, I don't really know about this movie. But then once he added the score and the sound, it really kind of took the movie to the next level. I think what it did for him as a director, and I'm only assuming this, but as someone who's like directed things here and there, if you have something that is so successful and people react to it, I think it really shows you, okay, what really worked for people how can I elevate that in my next project? And those things that didn't really work as well, how can I make it better? And I think like, and I, it's rare, it happens that someone's freshman project, well, at least a big cinematic project like that uh, can really give you all those things because I think a lot of people, they'll make their first movie and it's not good. And now that's like, you don't really have any, any reference or any guide of like, well, what did I succeed with? Um, and I think that that was something that, you know, Carpenter, people like Carpenter, all those directors of that era, when they made their first movie and it was so good, you know, they had a lot to sort of work with for the sequels or for, you know, future movies. Um, yeah, future projects, all that kind of stuff, which is why I think like Halloween 2 
is so interesting to me because it's like he didn't know what to do with it but because he was contractually obligated to do it we end up getting a movie that's like not so great but then he went off and made so many other good movies throughout the 80s um so i think like you know being very aware and um yeah, just being very aware of what your skill set is, I think is the most important thing. And I think he was so aware of like what he was good at, whether it was music, what type of writing, how he directs, and who he works well with, um, I think really was able to kind of pro propel his career in a, in a positive direction. Uh, in terms of Halloween, you know, yeah, I think like there's so many franchises who just try to rip off what that franchise did. But when you don't have the guy who really, and it's not just John Carpenter, like, I think he was lucky enough to be surrounded by so many amazing people, including Deborah Hill, who co-wrote the movie with him, that I think, like, all of those pieces would not have worked without all of those people. And sometimes it's just lightning in a bottle, and it just works out that way. And, you know, luckily for them, it, it worked out. So good on them, I guess. Right. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's a team effort. Definitely. John Carpenter wasn't alone. It, like you said, Deborah Hill, um, Jamie Lee Curtis, who I, you know, is definitely, I think in the conversation for one of the best horror performances, I think in, in this movie, um, which we could talk about her in a second, but you know, I want to, I do want to, you know, talk, talk about John Carpenter's later films. He did end up doing, um, a lot of, uh, you know, a little more cheesier films like Escape to New, from um, New York and, um, you know, they, uh, they live and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you look at something like The Thing, which is a really sophisticated uh, uh, horror slash thriller science fiction movie. Um, and then you look at some other pieces of his filmography that just really stand out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's 100 percent Halloween for me. But, um, you know, uh, you know, like you said, it's, 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 it's definitely not just about uh, John Carpenter himself. It's also about Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, and, and her portrayal uh, as Lori. Um, Adam, what do you think hooked you um, with, with her character initially coming out of the gate when you, when you first saw this movie when you were nine years old? Uh, that's a good question, because up, uh, up to that point, I had seen, a f I'm trying to like, think of how many Jamie Lee Curtis movies I had seen at, at that point, but enough. But I think like there's an innocence to that character and there's so much like realism with how she portrays it you know it's like at nine you don't really like get it but once you get older you get into 13 14 15 16 it wasn't until I got to high school that like your life is very reflective of like that person's life and hanging out with friends and doing you know all that sort of stuff you really start to understand you know where that character is kind of coming from and why she's afraid of certain things and having those types of friends. So I think it's like, to a certain extent, there's a relatability. And regardless of the fact that, you know, she's a female character, I never, like to me, I never, to me, she was just like someone who is in trouble and she's dealing with, she's in the middle of a horrible situation and like her friends are dying. And I think no matter what you look at that, and you're like, that would be a horrible situation to be in. So you like are, you are very much like relating to that character. Uh, there's a lot of sympathy happening and she is sort of like the vehicle for that for that whole movie and especially when you get into the third act when Michael's now finally coming after her uh, you're just like nonstop rooting for that character and I think Jamie Lee Curtis as an actor despite only being I think 17 or 18 when she made that movie it's just so real very believable very realistic and where they end up taking the character you know 40 years later you're like yeah that that's a that's like a an arc that I believe that somebody would go through or a journey somebody I think would go through 
And I think like that, that was, that was a lot to live up to without even understanding that you were going to kind of be living up to that sort of expectation. And I think her performance and how she lives and sort of like breathes in that world, in my opinion, really sort of defined how like that whole genre into the seventies, eighties and nineties. I mean, you look at all the franchises that were birthed after Halloween, you know, your Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream. And even though they did things differently, they all have a Laurie Strode type of character. Uh, so I think like the influence of what Jamie Lee Curtis did was hugely impactful on film, on actors, uh, and on like that genre of movies. Absolutely. Sabrina? And she's just really yeah. cool, so. Yeah, oh, yeah that's the yeah. thing. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis is so awesome. Like, obviously, I didn't see this probably till after I already saw Freaky Friday, so that's probably how I was introduced to Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Freaky Friday. Uh, Ooh, classic. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time I saw this film, um, the thing, I was probably like 12 or 13 when I had seen this for the first time, and I just kind of connected with her. She's almost, She's almost very relatable and very authentic, but also kind of the perfect image of what you would want a high schooler to be. If you were a parent, you would kind of want a Laurie Strode as a daughter. She's very level-headed, especially compared to her friends. And I always found that to be really interesting, how she's very relatable and authentic and feels real to what a high schooler would be in these situations. You know, it's it's very difficult. She's she's getting stalked by a killer who is incredibly strong. I don't even know what I would do in those situations, but she always kind of kind of finds the perfect thing to do but it still feels realistic at the same time. And so that's something that I thought was really awesome. And just the fact that she held her own, she was level-headed throughout the entire film. She knew what to do. I just thought she was, even though we get those emotional moments where, you know, she's going through a lot right now, she's not, she doesn't go automatic like badass and then takes him out. She is fractured. She is damaged throughout, throughout this film by everything that's happening around her. But at the end, she still ends up on top and she's only she's a high schooler. And so that's something that I really admired. I love seeing how strong her character was, even in those like really hard times that she has to go through throughout the film. Yeah. And I think a lot of people very quickly, you know, and we all notice it, you know, in the first movie, she's constantly like getting rid of the weapon, throwing the knife away, you know, whatever she has, but you also have to realize like how quickly she adapts. You know, she, she runs into the house. She doesn't know what to do. She grabs a, a, a knitting needle and she just, you know, goes after him drops that goes upstairs and like as soon as like there's another opportunity for michael myers to get her she's like cool how the hell do i get out of this situation and is constantly trying to find a way out and i think like if it was me i probably would have just froze and i'd be dead um but the fact that she's just like no i'm not gonna let this like be the thing that ends me uh is is i don't know just something that's very admirable about that character and i think the reason like why i think so many people just love her and jamie lee curtis also again is just like so great yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, she. Yeah, I think she's one of my favorites. Like you know, Freaky Friday aside, True Lies <laughs> two is up there. Uh, uh, True Lies is up there. Uh, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is just amazing. And um, we're gonna talk a little bit more about her in the second half uh, when we talk about the 2018 Halloween. But we're also before we talk about that, we're also gonna talk about um, the 2007 um, Rob Zombie. Uh, remake, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we're probably gonna have some mixed, mixed go. here. <laughs> so, uh, be sure to uh, stick with stick around after the break. This ain't funny, so don't you dare laugh. With the 450 divide you in half, you getting at me equals a club half.
check out the link for this week's First Cut live stream, where we play our own version of The Weakest Link with some of his stars. Enjoy. If Jay answered this, he win. Come on. So Jay, this is your final question. Answer it wrong, Jay. Do me good, baby. You answer this correctly, you win the grand prize of $8.00. Your question. Born in, Archduce- born in Archduchess of Austria, who was the last ever queen of France before the revolution in the late 18th century? Marie Antoinette? The correct answer is Marie Antoinette. Congratulations, I knew it, you bitch. I knew it. I I was like, he got full out one. I knew it. Off with her head, bro. Off with her head. Off with her head, yo. Jay is the winner of First Cut Lives, the weakest link, finally redeeming himself from the first episode. Jay, how are you feeling right now? Woo, that's like, man, I'm... I'm feeling good. Uh, wanna wanna give an honor to God who's head of my life, <laughs> mother, uh, members of the church. <laughs> I couldn't, oh my be, God. couldn't be here without their prayers. That's I'm feeling good, man. Check out our new website on geeksofcolor.co/first-cut to check out our reviews, our videos, and articles that pertain to everything first cut related. Check it out. Come along, children. Now we're going to have a little music. Welcome back to the Meaning of Podcast. Uh, in the first half, we talked a lot about the original 1978 Halloween. And, you know, obviously there's a number of sequels. There's a number of prequels, predecessors, however you want to call it. Um, but we're not talking about many of those today. Instead, we're really just going to compare uh, the three Halloweens. The, the, the Halloween, the Halloween, and the Halloween. Uh, the 2007 Halloween. Uh, this franchise has a real problem with, with naming, uh, for real. But, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the 2007 Rob Zombie remake of Halloween. Um, you know, first, um, how, how are y'all feeling uh, about... I know we have some mixed uh, opinions on the panel here, so... I'm Wait, gonna st- do we? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm to start with you, Sabrina, because I feel like you could, you, yeah. could, you could start us off a little light here. No, I absolutely hate this movie i think it is completely atrocious i just need to start off by saying that so thank god we're fine everything's fine everything's fine i I think everybody's basically on the same page and i do know people who actually really love it but those are people who actually don't like the original i think if you have an attachment to the original it this film is just very difficult to watch even on a revisit i haven't watched it since like around when it came out until a few days ago and i was like it can't be that bad Then I saw it and wow, they really just take this story and completely change everything that we love from the original. I feel like giving it to a filmmaker like Rob Zombie, Rob Zombie has such a particular voice with his storytelling and with his horror. And I just don't think it meshes really well with this story at all. Um, Obviously it's, you know, it's notorious for going into the backstory of Michael. We spend a lot of time with Michael as a child. And that's something that's a huge detriment because like we said in the beginning, what we really admire about him and what kind of makes him intriguing is the fact that he's this shape. He's this evil being. We, we see him a little bit when he's a child in the beginning, 
but it doesn't go any deeper than that. We skip right into where the story actually takes place and where it begins. And with this one, we spend so much time when he's a kid, they try to give him like this broken home situation and it just isn't really reflective or anything. It's not like taking something old and trying to make it new and make it interesting for audiences. It's just completely changing the story. And they essentially could have made this film without using Michael Myers or Halloween and just made a different type of slasher film if they wanted to, because it strays away from it that much where it just doesn't feel like Halloween. Even when we have like this, like a score kick in and it's reminiscent of it, it's just doesn't feel the same and it doesn't capture the same feelings or emotions. And so I think this is just gory for unnecessary reasons heavy and dark for unnecessary reasons when we really fell in love with you know the patience and the meticulous directing from the original to this one this one's just kind of a complete mess like story wise acting wise it just nothing held up like i i could talk about this forever i'm gonna i'm gonna take it uh give it to adam for this one because i know he feels the same way and we'll just talk about it back and forth <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. This movie's really problematic, but I think you like, I think you hit a lot of the same points and feelings that I have about this movie. It has no weight and it just kind of feels lifeless. And to me, I feel like Rob Zombie made 60 minutes of a movie and then he just tried to carbon copy what Carpenter did, but threw in more blood and was like, yeah, see, this movie's great. We just added more blood. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't care about anybody. Like I don't care about Michael Myers anymore then I should, given the fact we spent an hour building up his backstory. And I, yeah, I think the whole idea of trying to define why evil is evil is kind of like, eh, eh. And I know a lot of people say like, well, they did it with Darth Vader and that really worked. I'm like, yeah, but you like, they're not the same character. They're completely different characters. They have different motivations. Uh, they're not, you know, they're, they're so different that like you can't, otherwise we could do that with every single character and we would have to just like accept that it's good. Uh, with Michael, the whole thing was like, he's just an unstoppable force. And the second you tried to define like why he is the way he is and going with like, I don't know, to me, the fact that Michael came from a broken home, I'm like, all right. I mean, that's just like, that's such a typical thing to do. And that's just so boring and like not original. And I, I get that there's, there are so many people who really, really like this movie. And, you know, if you like this movie, then like, that's fine. It just wasn't for me. It didn't tap into what made me fall in love with the first movie. It's very brutal in terms of its pacing, in terms of its camera work. There's nothing fluid about it. I never felt like I got to understand the perspective of Michael Myers as an adult. He was just kind of like a big brooding force who would go through walls. And I was like, well, what's your objective here? Are you trying to find Lori and recruit her? Are you going to kill her? In the first movie, I think it's very clear that everything happens pretty much by accident. If Lori would have never gone up those steps to drop those keys off, Michael would have never interacted with her and she would have probably been fine. But now that, you know, they took the element, which Carpenter hates, by the way, he never was a fan of Michael and Lori being siblings. He, he talks about in an interview how he was forced to write a movie and he did it over a six pack of beer and that was the best thing he could come up with. So the fact that Rob Zombie like doubled down on that uh, just made the story just not as interesting and surprising because you knew what to expect. They took the concepts of the first two and they just kind of spit them back out. Um, so just nothing, nothing to me felt exciting or original. And I think if you're already go going to remake such a classic movie, 
<clears throat> I think you can you can definitely pay respect and homage to the first movie, but then also spin it off and just do your own thing. And this movie was just kind of like, eh, whatever. We made it and we made Michael Myers, you know, six feet, six foot five, and he could go through walls, but nothing interesting. And, you know, I, I watched a lot of interviews with Rob Zombie. He talked about how he thought it was a problem that you could go into a store and buy a Michael Myers plush toy. And he wanted he, to, him to be menacing and scary. And I was like, oh, I'm on board with that. But then in another interview, he talked about like how he had a problem that somebody references that somebody taught Michael how to drive. I'm like, we don't need to explain why Michael Myers can or can't drive. That's not the interesting part about the character. It's the fact that he's an unstoppable force. And it just, try, it just spent too much time trying to define the why. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. Just make him scary. And I'm on board. So yeah, it really doesn't work for me. Number two completely does not work for me. But yeah, those are my thoughts about Rob Zombie's Halloween. Yeah, it really, it really is something where it's just kind of like there was no point to this film, and <clears throat> Rob Zombie just probably shouldn't be behind a Halloween film, like because yeah. he decided to over-explain all of these things, and it kind of takes away all the allure of what we liked from the original. It mm -hmm. makes it just like, oh yes, this is this deranged kid serial killer. You know, he grew up in a broken home, and then everything that we we're talking about that we we're praising the original for for not being as bloody this one takes every single oh thing times a hundred there's so much like nudity and blood and just all of this like inappropriate stuff that i don't necessarily love within the story i just don't think it fits and mm -hmm. it doesn't work at all um so yeah and then the second one is even worse uh <laughs> so <God>. obviously yeah <laughs> rails yeah and it's, you it's know, bad I I always I always talk about like how I, I applaud filmmakers for, you know, sharing their particular vision and voice with anything and him wanting to put his stamp on the story. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it meshed well at all. And then it just gave us a mess. It gave us a mess of all these different stories and then his mother and all none of it worked at all. And yeah. yeah, it's just it's really lackluster and it's honestly hard to watch most of the time just because of like the pacing, the energy of the film is just completely off. It's, it's, yeah, it's just kind of atrocious. And I, I feel bad saying that, but I, it's just definitely not my type of thing. I think it takes everything we loved and alters it and mm. not in a good way. It, then it just kind of goes south and goes negative. Yeah. And I think like, I, I when I remember watching the trailer, when a trailer first came out, when I think it was like when Grindhouse came out and I was like, dude, I'm, I'm like on board with this. There's, little touches to the Carpenter movie. Like the trailer did a really good job masking all the problems with the movie. And I think honestly, my biggest thing that I just can't stand in that movie and it sucks because I love this actor so much. I cannot stand Dr. Loomis in this movie. He's just such a 180. Yeah. He's just such a 180 from how Donald Pleasance plays him. Cause Donald Pleasance has this, like, you can tell that that man is a little off his rocker. Like he's a little nuts Malcolm McDowell kind of plays it a little bit more like, yeah, I'm a hippie from the seventies. And yeah, I was this guy's doctor and yeah, he's just crazy. And I'm like, I don't believe anything you're telling me. Like I could not care less about him. I kind of hoped he would die at the end of the movie. And yeah. So it's just like, it just lacked the magic that I think that first movie, the original movie had and just that like touch and that warmth and like the levity, the jokes in the original Halloween movie, even though they're very subtle and there's not a lot of them, I think like they help break the tension really well in this movie. You watch it and this movie's from 2007. 
it does not age well after 13 years. You watch it and you're like, these are really bad jokes. Whereas the 78 one, you can watch and you're like, it's a little cheesy, but it helps break the tension. And I, and I like that about it. It just has that charm. And this one, I was just like, eh, whatever. Yeah, and, and the humor, it's fitting for the time for like the 78 film. And in this one, like you said, I am just completely detached from every single character. The jokes that they have are just so over the top when we first have when we're introduced to Lori and like her mother that entire scene was just so odd to me I was like I don't know how we're supposed to kind of have the same connection that we had with Jamie Lee Curtis and root for this character and hope she makes it out at the end it just yeah I feel like it left so much to be desired for a Halloween film that it's like barely a remake like they just took Michael Myers and they took the same characters but they did something completely different but exactly the same at the same time like it, it's so hard to explain um but it's it's a mess yeah i feel like it i feel like it fits right into like those two that i feel like there's two things it fits into right that early 2000s mid 2000s horror film that was really heavy on the exploitation and the torture porn and the super heavy on the gore and the violence because that's really what stood out to me when I, when I last time I remember seeing it. And also, too, the obsession with the origin myth, right? The obsession with, um, you know, seeing exactly where everybody comes from, like, down to every single detail. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of movies um, like that today. We're seeing some movies begin to move away from that. But uh, this was definitely implanted heavily into that, and I think that was uh, to the detriment of this film, for sure. Yeah, and I think, like, you look at the timeline, and it's ironic that, like, two years after that, we got another Friday the 13th movie, and literally a year later, we got another Nightmare on Elm Street. All were remakes. None of them worked, because I think they they saw that, like, oh, Halloween did really well. Rob Zombie did something smart there. We should do, we should, we should copy-paste that through all of our franchise. Well, New Line owned both of those at the time, but it was like, man, you guys really missed what made those movies special when they first came out, but, you know, it's what it is. And sometimes you just can't remake the magic. Right. You, you just can't capture that exact same thing. You need a really talented um, team kind of behind it. You need somebody that really cherishes and loves what the idea is. Because when you stray away from the things that makes it like really special, then that's when it's just not going to really connect with people. Even if it's a success at the box office, that doesn't mean the next one will be. That doesn't mean the one after that. You can't just continue on if you don't have a solid foundation. And this Rob Zombie film is not a solid foundation. Yeah. Truth. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, well, that is why we are, that's why we have entered our third Halloween uh, in the Halloween franchise. Um, the 2018 Halloween um, that was, um, let me see. I don't know if I have the particular director pulled David up here. Gordon Green. David Gordon Green. That's right. Um, if you love Pineapple Express, you'll love this movie. Um, hey, listen, I, look what's right on top here. Right on top of my still book collection, Pineapple Express. There you one go. Of my favorite movies. My man. Um, so, and um, I actually really enjoyed uh, this 2018 Halloween remake. It received uh, a lot of critical acclaim and really was um, a revigorization uh, to, the, to the Halloween franchise in the way that I think even surpassed the 2007 remake and surpassed any sequel that was even made. Um, even more than H2O, which I also enjoy too. Um, but I, uh, as someone who... Um, as someone who was kind of walking into this Halloween remake, um, 
highly skeptical because, you know, you kind of wonder what a, a comedy director is going to bring to this. But, you know, we've obviously seen people like Jordan Peele and a lot of other comedy people make a successful transition into horror. Um, I was excited, but I was nervous. But uh, I ended up really enjoying it. I thought it was like a perfect blend of humor and suspense and action and, and um, action um, and while also giving us a good evolution to a lot of these characters. So I know for you, Adam, you're very passionate about this movie. So uh, give, us what, <laughs> give us what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt the same way. You know, when I when I first read that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride were going to develop a Halloween movie, I thought it was like, what? <laughs> I love Pineapple Express. What? <laughs> I was very confused. But then I thought the same thing. I'm like, hold on. There have been so many actors, directors who have transitioned through different genres and have usually done it. A lot of times I've done it successfully. So I thought, okay, cool. I'm going to give these guys the benefit of the doubt. And the more I researched and found out how much how big of fans they were of the franchise and how they wanted Carpenter to be involved and eventually finding out that Jamie Lee Curtis was going to be involved. I was like, this is fascinating. What is this movie? And then finding out, Oh, it's going to take place 40 years later. They were, uh, they were kind of vague as to like whether or not it was going to take place after Halloween one or Halloween two. So I think a lot of people for a while made assumptions of like, well, okay, is this a Michael Myers after he's been burned? Is Loomis dead? All this stuff. But then once they were like, nope, just the first movie, it's a direct sequel to Halloween. I was like, okay, this could be really fun. And I think this was like right around the time, you know, like episode seven had just come out. I think like, 2015. you know, yeah, a year or two before, uh, maybe like a year before they announced it. So I was like, okay, this is now the trend of Hollywood. We're going to revisit stuff from the past and catch up to it 30, 40 years later and see what's happened to these characters. So I was intrigued by that. The long gap sequel, which, you know, I've been trying to coin as a, as a film term for a while, a uh, long gap sequel or, or uh, which, you know, we've seen Force Awake in 2015 alone. We saw the Force Awakens, mm-hmm. Vacation, yep. uh, Mad Max Free Road. And um, there was another one that came out in 2015, too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, Jurassic World. Um, so right, right. we have seen a number of, of, of long gap sequels kind of happening during that time. And this was kind of coming after that. Um, so, Sabrina, how do you think this film succeeded um, and, and, and carrying on the mantle of the Halloween franchise. Well, it's kind of like just what I was saying about the Rob Zombie film, where if you're going to make a remake, you have to have people behind it that actually care about the story and have a particular love for it. And that's kind of the way that they can honor it by really capturing the magic and the spirit of it, but also modernizing it and kind of making it more accessible to like modern audiences and kind of what we want to see in horror. So obviously we have that blend of the humor and there is a lot more humor in this film than we would typically see, uh, like in the original Halloween film. But we have that humor and some of it works for me, some of it doesn't, but by by the end it's still enjoyable. Um, I don't know, I loved how they added certain things like a horror true crime podcast Things like that. I'm just like, that's really funny. I wonder how that is going to hold up in 40 years, if people are going to kind of see that and still understand that reference and that joke. Um, and that's kind of what it is. I think people people um, really enjoyed it because we see an evolution of the character that we fell in love with. We talked about how much we loved Lori in this. And it's something completely different. We talked about her being that sweet, perfect, virginal woman. And then we see her as this like hardened badass. And that's what would happen if you go through trauma. If you go through trauma, there's a few different outcomes and one of them would be ready for it to happen again. If it were to happen again, you'd be prepared. And that's exactly what she did. And we saw the demise of her um, relationship with her daughter, her relationship with her granddaughter and things like that as a result of what she went through. So I actually really, really enjoyed that whole entire gap and it being a direct sequel to the first one and not counting any of the other ones. 
because I feel like we get the next best like look at Lori that we've had since the original and it feels realistic and it feels authentic and even the introduction to a lot of the characters that we met it feels real to right now like it feels like I would go into a high school and I would see all the kids that we were introduced to and I had a connection with all of them and that was the that was so different from the Rob Zombie film where I wasn't rooting for anybody this one I actually found bits and pieces of every character to love and the children in the film were hilarious like there was just a lot of really special things that stood out to me and that's what made me enjoy it I thought it was genuinely scary this this Michael Myers was absolutely brutal the way he kills that child in the van is so scary that's completely terrifying to me I didn't think we were going to see that when I was sitting down and watching it in the theater and the fact that they did it but they did it in a tasteful way again where it's not that gritty dark brutal just to be brutal it's showing like yes again this is that force that you were afraid of we're just showing him now 40 years later and so I absolutely loved it coming out of it and I ended up seeing it a few times in theaters and every single time all the people around me were just like gasping because you don't expect to see some of the things that we saw. And so I thought it was really awesome. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. I think this movie or 2018 movie did a good job of it's definitely gorier and bloodier, but it didn't take it to the extreme. I think it does it to sort of, I think it's also to just show you the evolution of the character because in the first movie, you know, when he sets up the haunted house, it's pretty tame for the most part. But in this one, you know, he's like carving up people's faces like pumpkins. And so it show, I think it's just to like help you help kind of show the evolution of like, Michael is really pissed. He's been in prison for 40 years. He's coming back to get his revenge on Lori without even, I would say, without necessarily even understanding that that's what his path was going to be. And the thing with Lori is, yeah, I agree. I think there are only two potential things that that character could have done. Either she ends up, you know, going off and just kind of like hiding in a corner and you don't know what happens to her or she is somebody who very much like I'm going to train up I want to be completely aware of my surroundings I want to protect my family I'm not going to be I'm not just going to be a victim I want to be a survivor and I want and like really define what that was and I think that's what I really loved about the take on that character it wasn't just because H2O I think plays with that idea a little bit but not to the extent that this movie does of like the trauma you know, like Lori moves on in H2O and there's little bits of like, yeah, I'm definitely traumatized by what's happened. But I think this movie did a much better job and it really expanded on like, well, what would this be like if 40 years ago you were nearly brutally murdered by someone and, you know, he killed so many of your friends? Like, what would that do to you mentally, physically? How would that affect your relationships in the real world with people, your marriages, your relationship with your kids? And I love that movie really dove into that because it didn't, it didn't have to, you know, I think a lot of people would have just been excited to see Michael Myers and Lori again. And I think some of the beautiful touches of paying tribute to and homaging things from almost all the movies, I would say there's so many references to all the movies in, in this one. Um, the big thing that did it for me was when I went to Comic-Con and I saw that one shot um, of walking through all the houses. And I thought like, this is a movie that's being made by people who love and respect Halloween, John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis, like the whole, like the whole thing. So it, it really like restored a lot of faith uh, for me as a fan. And then, yeah, just seeing how the characters play out in the relationships and how in some instances, Laurie has kind of evolved into being like Michael in some ways, I thought was 
a really fun thing to play with. And I can't wait to see where it goes in the sequels. It really makes me excited to see where they take the story. Yeah. And like you said, it really, the trauma that Lori goes through and that leads her to where she is now, I think they hand, handled that so beautifully. And I think they expanded upon ideas from the original and they were able to kind of explore a lot of things in this one, obviously, because we're, we're revisiting these characters 40 years later. And it's interesting that we just talked about how Rob Zombie explained that whole like origin and we see the kid's face and it kind of just takes away. But in this film, they do show his face and like parts of his face but it works really, really well. And it's done in a very tasteful way that still makes him that menacing being, um, but like just goes a little bit further with it. And that's kind of what they did with each and every single one of these characters. And I really do love the granddaughter that they introduced us to, which is basically Lori 2.0, but I enjoy that. And, and she still has that kind of bond with her grandmother, even with everything that's happening and the relationship being severed due to like her mom. But yeah, it's, I think it just shows kind of the effects of trauma very beautifully. Like you said, she's kind of becoming like Michael. She's, it's almost like she spent so much time like thinking like him to be able to take him down when the time comes or if the time comes. And I thought they just handled that absolutely beautifully. And I, and I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Adam. Oh no, I was going to say, and you know, when you're talking about that, that whole um, idea of him not um, wearing, wearing a mask, Sabrina and him not, you know, and, and, and Lori's kind of, dealing with generational trauma, generational trauma and her family dealing with generational trauma because of what Lori experienced. Right. I think these are themes that are very contemporary to 2018. Right. Whereas the 1970 or 1978 version has them in the mask because the killers back then were mysterious people. We didn't know serial killers like the Zodiac killer or things like that. But I think in today's society, a lot of the notions um, of, of our trauma comes from the people we actually do know, the people um, around us, the people who are human, the people who have interacted in our lives before, and the people who have affected the people um, in previous generations or uh, generations after us. So um, a lot of times that is the scariest part and, and not knowing who, and not knowing who people are until they really amass themselves and is really somebody who you recognize. But, you know, he still has those kind of dead eyes, even when you see that kind of uh, look at his face. So my, so my, my thing is with this, with this movie, it kind of, I think it also takes a little bit of a blockbuster approach to the, to the horror genre too, right? So the, especially to Halloween genre, right? Because we talked about it last week and, and it having kind of this, um, this, this kind of aesthetic that's a little bit, away from the traditional like horror it doesn't go out of his way to make itself overly horrific but it, it prioritizes um a, a different aspect you know and we talked about it being like a coming of age i think this movie is more of like a, a drama character piece and i think a little bit of an action movie too um do you think that kind of aesthetic change affects the way you know this this halloween movie stands uh, you know in comparison to the rest of the franchise or do you think that it, it makes it more worthy and, and stand above uh, sabrina well i think it's interesting that you brought that up actually because i do think this is a blend of a lot of different genres that people can find a little bit of what they love and that makes it more accessible to like audiences and i think that's why it was a success is because we do have even a little bit of that just like teen kind of coming of age like high school aspect to it because we dive way deeper into the friends and we dive deeper into Lori and her boyfriend and all those experiences that she's having. So we have that and those comedic characters. And then we have, even when she's babysitting, I just feel like the original didn't shine as much of a light. And that's not a negative thing at all. I just think this takes it, that approach a little bit differently. 
And we do get that blend of drama with the trauma that Lori uh, is going through and with what her family's dealing with. We get the comedy from the father and from the friends. We have all the high school pieces. And then we still, like I said, the horror is, I think, really, really incredible. The scenes that are scary, they're terrifying. And so we have a mix of all of that. And it kind of adds a little bit of levity to the situation. You're not, you're not scared throughout the entire thing. You're not freaking out the entire time. Um, you know, there'll be that buildup of tension, trauma, or tension, and then it's kind of alleviated for a second. Um, when one of the friends just has like a little funny line, bumps into something, thinks it gets like spooked. And like we do too, because we're in the same place that they are in that situation. And so I feel like a lot of people can find a little bit in this film to enjoy, uh, or all of it. If you're kind of a fan of all different types of genres, there is a lot to love here. And I think that's what kind of made it accessible. Yeah, and I think it's part of the reason why it really seats itself at the top, right? Uh, I still think the original is the best, but I think this one is like right, right underneath it. And I think it's for a lot of the reasons that, that, that you brought up. And I think because instead of just trying to make a Halloween movie for the sake of making a Halloween movie, it really tried to say something about the time we're living in, say something about the characters. And I think we're at this point now in filmmaking and in like this industry that people don't always necessarily just want to go see something for the sake of seeing something they want to walk into something they want to be entertained they want to fall in love with the characters they want to fall in love with the action whatever is on the screen they want to fall in love with it and if you're just kind of putting something out there just for the sake of being like well we can make a halloween movie so let's just make it that's not as interesting to people nowadays if people are going to invest their time and their money to go see something they have to, you have to convince them to care about it. And I think like that wasn't always the case. And I think that's why you can get away with making Halloween four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, uh, before you can like have to make a movie that people are like, oh damn, yeah, Laurie Strode, she's awesome. I actually like really believe her journey and I believe these relationships. And I think that to me is like that love and care put into the movie is why I'm like, man, yeah, if we can continue doing that with not just Halloween, but other franchises that we haven't seen in you know, 10, 20, 30 years, then I think it's possible for this like genre of slasher movies to have a resurgence, but to also be like loved by people. You know, They're doing a screen movie now and I'm like, cool. If the new filmmaking people can put the same love and care into it, like uh, David Gordon Green and, and Danny McBride and that team did to honor what like Carpenter did and you can honor what Wes Craven did with the first movie, then like, great, people are gonna love it. I think like just putting something out there for the sake of putting it out there. You know, I think like, I think today, especially now it's uh, I don't know, it's like a losing, it's a losing ticket in my opinion. So yeah, for all those reasons, I think that's why this movie has, has like seated itself way up at the top. Uh, it, the respected pace of the original, the respected pace of the characters, how it builds them out. And like, for me personally, the supporting characters in the movie, I, I personally prefer Linda and Annie but to me, the movie's not about those characters in this movie. It's not about those supporting characters. They're there to like help kind of flesh out the world and make it feel more real and three-dimensional and really lived in. And for like other people who maybe are not the biggest Halloween fans, I feel like those, those characters are vehicles for people to kind of like come in and be like, I don't know this franchise. What is this? You know, they're, they're those types of characters. They're what those characters represent. And I think that's why that movie in general was like so loved by so many people when it came out a couple years ago is like there was something in there like you said for everyone 
You didn't have to know Halloween. You didn't have to know the lore, the history. And I think that's probably why it was so good for that movie to just say like, you know what? Just the first movie. That's all you need to know. Because I think if you tag on four different timelines of history, people are like, I don't know what this is. I don't get it. I don't want to sit here and watch this. I don't blame them. You know, to have to like know 40 years of history of a franchise that has splintering timelines. Nah, don't worry about it. So I think that for me personally as a Halloween fan, that's why it worked so well. And there's so many beautiful homages to things throughout from throughout the franchise in that movie that I'm like, yeah, this this you really like figured out how to make it 2018 relevant, but also make me like care about everybody. So Yeah, absolutely. Um and I think that's one of the most beautiful um I think cases for why this is uh the best Halloween sequel. Um Adam, uh Sabrina, would you personally would you personally rank this as your favorite uh, Halloween sequel um, after the original? Yeah, this is my number two for sure because it's the one that I've kind of even, it's only been out for two years and I've actually revisited it so many times and every time I still really enjoy it and I find little bits and pieces that I start to love even more. And then I also notice stuff that I don't love as much, but it doesn't it doesn't take away from the fact that I still really enjoy this and I was so pleasantly surprised by how much I loved it and how I'm really looking forward to everything that they're doing in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, all right, y'all. That uh, that brings us to the end of the Meaning of Podcast. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining us um, today for today's episode. Um, tell, tell the people where we can find you. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me ramble about Halloween uh, nonstop. This could have been very dangerous. I could have started talking about four different timelines of, of movie history. Thank God we didn't do that. Uh, but I'm just under social media. Just have my name, Adam Lavick. Keep it simple. Uh, if you can't spell it, I'm sure it'll be in a YouTube description somewhere. You'll be able to find it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, YouTube description, lower third. It's, it's always there. Uh, Sabrina, what about you? Yeah, you guys could follow me on Twitter and Instagram at SabrinaXMonica and then also on Twitter at SabrinaOnFilm. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DirectorRB3. And remember to follow our social media accounts at FirstCutTMO on Twitter and Instagram. With that being said... Uh, this was the meaning of Halloween, all three of them, and um, I'm really happy that we got to break this down with one of the most enthusiastic Halloween fans uh, on the planet. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Uh, for the meaning of podcast, uh, I'm RB3. I'm Sabrina, and that was Adam. That's Adam. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, y'all, and uh, peace out. Have a good one. Bye.